0: The beer In today's hot seat is Steve Cadigan. Steve Cadigan is a highly sought-after talent advisor to leaders and organizations across the globe. He speaks regularly to conferences and major universities around the world and is regularly retained by Silicon Valley's top VCs for his talent expertise. Steve is frequently asked to appear on TV and is a regular guest on Bloomberg, West, and CNBC. Prior to launching his own firm, Steve worked as... Um, an HR executive for over 25 years at a wide-ranging top-tier companies, including eSpirit, Alliance, uh, Cisco Systems, Electronic Arts, and capped by serving as the first chief uh, HR officer for LinkedIn from 2009 through 2012. His culture work uh, has been actually uh, been a case study at Stanford, right? Phenomenal. Uh, and uh, Steve is part of. Uh, besides being on on board of directors, he's also an advisory board of several other companies. And he recently published uh, this book uh, called "Work Quake: Embracing the Aftershocks of COVID-19 to Create a Better Model for Working." I actually personally read the book uh, cover to cover. Well, technically, from the first word to the last word, because I listened to it on <laughs> Audible. I'm an Audible customer. <laughs> Since the beginning, I beta tested Audible. That's how long I've been using Audible. Um, so, uh, Steve, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here, Sabir. Thank you so much for a kind welcome and a great introduction.
0: Um, so, before we get started, what I ask all of my guests to do is kind of introduce themselves as as uh, you know who they are and where did they come from, what's what's their past, what's their life story. Uh, I want to start there with you. So, so tell us okay. about Steve Cadigan.
1: Sure. I'm, I'm going to go the non-professional route here, sort of the, the human being route. Um, I uh, grew up in South Africa. When I was two, my parents were very rebellious and they wanted an experience. And so my father, who's was a, with the Episcopal ministry, changed jobs with someone that he knew from divinity school. and we went to Africa for a year and they fell in love with South Africa so much that, Uh, I wound up living there for about five years. Wow. Uh, When when I was seven, uh, we were asked politely or impolitely by the South African government to leave, uh, as were many Americans. So we had to come back to the United States and settle on the East Coast, just outside of New York in a small uh, working class town called Danbury, Connecticut. And I faced for the first time in my life, severe teasing because I had a very strong accent (laughs) <laughs> uh, from living in South Africa. And my sister and I, my older sister was about two years older. She and I used to stay awake at night crying and practicing American accents so hard because we wanted to fit in so badly. And um, But I knew at a very young age w- when my father was asked to leave, there were protests at the airport. He was a very prominent figure and, and uh, preached a lot, not only in the uh, Afrikaans community, but also in the Zulu uh, townships that were not too far from where we live. So there were a lot of protests. People were unhappy that my father was and family were being asked to leave and it left an impression on me of what was that about? I didn't really understand. Like, why did we have to leave and and so forth? But uh, I grew up in Connecticut. Uh, My father took a position at a private school as a chaplain and then, uh, bless his heart, worked his way up to be a headmaster of the school. And so I had a, grew up on just like the ideal playground as a kid, this private school campus where I had, you know, gymnasiums, tennis courts, fields, uh, and lots of open space and outdoors. Just loved it. I graduated high school there. I went to a university in Connecticut because I wasn't very adventurous, apparently. It was about 40 minutes from my house. It was a small school. Uh, I didn't know what to major in when I went to school. I had no idea at all. Uh, I studied history because I enjoyed it more than the other subjects. But I had no business role model, Sabir, in my life. Like nobody. Every man on my dad's side of the family was an ordained Episcopal minister. And my mother was a social worker helping uh, run daycare centers in low-income areas Mm -hmm. um, around her town. And so all I knew was that I love my parents, but I didn't want to do what they were doing. And I had really no sense going into college and then, sadly, or luckily, four years later, I still had no idea what I wanted to do. But in, in retrospect, you know, I wasn't worried. I, all I knew was I was uh, in love with a, a woman from California, and I was going to move to California to follow love, which I did. And California um, love. Exactly, and you know, like big decisions in life. I mean, love factors into a lot of big decisions we make in life. So I followed her, and moved to California. I had a, my older sister had preceded me; she was working out here, and that's pretty much been my home for for most of my life. Yeah. I landed here in the mid '80s, took a job with a company in uh, you mentioned Esprit, as a fashion company, and within about a year or two, I was rotated into a position of recruiting and recruiting people. And I just fell in love with it, everything about it. And what I loved about it was everything I loved about sports. I'm a huge uh, sports fan. I I played sports all through school and college. And not only do I like competing, I love watching how people handle competition. And when when I discovered in human resources that people will pay you to basically build teams and help teams get better, I'm like, this is like going to the gym every day. Like, I love it. Like, I love seeing how someone handles pressure, how someone handles defeat, how someone is inspired by different things or how someone really thrives when they're behind or, you know, and the corollary at work is when someone's behind in a deadline, that's when they do their best work. And so I love being able to sort of parlay my deep interest in human behavior through competition in the corporate world. And so from from that point, I got really lucky. I mean, I was 23 years old, and I found something that was like, I didn't even know what human resources was when I was in college. I did no internships. I taught tennis. I was a janitor, a painter, and a security guard. That was my summers in college. Mm-hmm. I did not a single day in a corporation. And to be honest, I mean, being raised by a minister, you're very suspicious of business. And, you know, well, I don't know about those people. You know, I don't know about the ethics. So I brought all that to the table with me in a very curious way way and discovered that a lot of the work that my parents were doing, helping uh, people was what I was doing in human resources you know, really helping people navigate this crazy world of work. So, you know, without going through all the companies that I've worked for, I went in about six different industries and probably um, over the course of the next, you know, 20 years or so, capped by being, as you mentioned, the first chief uh, HR officer at LinkedIn. And that was for me, I mean, just the crazy phenomenally stressful, anxious, you know, great adventure. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was just everything that you can imagine, good and bad, was part of that. And it was four years that felt like 20, if I'm honest. Um, And, and, you know, capped by the irony of our biggest product at the time was recruiting and our biggest Mm -hmm. company Challenge was recruiting effectively because we were getting slaughtered in a very competitive marketplace for talent with Google, Apple, Facebook, Twitter, just paying outrageous retention bonuses and signing bonuses. And I had to find a way of building this company facing incredible odds where failure wasn't an option, because if the world knew that we couldn't recruit effectively and we're LinkedIn, that would be bad. Um, <laughs> and that was my responsibility. If you, if you are helped, a barber,
0: sorry. if you're a barber and you cannot give, give a haircut, then that's a problem.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So now you can appreciate some of the stress. I mean, there were points where we struggled with recruiting so hard that the CEO declared recruiting is code red. You are going to be in my office every day for two hours uh, until this is out of code red. So wow. I had to, and 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 so we basically. I, I mean, it's an interesting side story. Me. Well, it was Jeff Weiner. Reed was the oh, yeah, yeah. the chairman, and he would appointed Jeff was the second CEO. There was a guy wow. before Jeff called Dan Nye, um, and Jeff basically, you know, we we broke down the recruiting process into about four hundred steps, and every day we would analyze new learnings. And having been recruiting for twenty years prior to this, I had never gone to the depth of understanding things like, hey, why did 17 interviews get rescheduled last week? And why were they rescheduled? And who rescheduled them? Or for example, why is it 15, this is fictitious numbers, but why is it 15 days from offer accept to someone starting? Like, why, why, why is that you know why does that should the number be shorter? Should it be longer? Or why does it take you know three weeks from you know someone says I want an interview to scheduling the interview? Like we would look at all kinds of stuff and mm-hmm. and learned a lot. So it was it was a fun adventure. But I uh, in 2012, the end of 2012, decided that I wanted to change. So I just I left and I had no plans. Sabir, just like most of the big decisions in my life, no plan going into college, no plan finishing college. <laughs> I walked into the office one day at LinkedIn and I was tired. I was fried. I was the only executive that had three young children. Okay. And most Mm -hmm. of them didn't have young children or any children. Um, And so I was feeling enormous guilt and enormous like sense of like, I'm failing my family by not being present. Because when I was home, honestly, I wasn't home you know what I mean? My mind was, oh, oh the yeah. board's calling me or we've got to change our comp plan or we have to switch from ISOs to RSUs. And I was stressed, man. And so all of a sudden I realized, hey, you know, Steve, and I'd been with my financial advisor the week before. He says, you don't ever need to work again. I said, what? He goes, yeah. I go, yes, I do. He goes, no, you don't. I said, okay. So armed with that and armed with this, hey, you know, sense of something's missing. I just walked in one day and, and Jeff Weiner says, hey, you don't look good. Are you okay? I said, yeah, I think I'm done. He goes, what? I said, yeah, I think I'm done. And I resigned. Uh, And for the last nine years or so since then, I've just been evolving into doing what I love to do and helping people solve talent problems and helping leaders and organizations build better strategies, uh, which culminated in the book that I just published a, a couple of months ago, Workquake, which is really sort of my attempt to sort of say, The model of work that we're using today to run most companies is built on a outdated model of work that is much longer production cycles and much longer, slower pace of work. And it hasn't modernized to face the reality of the workforce is thinking about work differently and the production of work is very different, but we've got all these other elements, this architecture of work, which is just fundamentally flawed. So, uh, so that's
0: sort of a little bit of my story, if you will. (laughs) There's a lot there, so I'm going to unpack some (laughs) of it. I mean, one of the things, one of the mental notes I just made was, you know, um, sometimes, you know, when when you're growing up, you want to look for that North star, you know, and and you look for your parent or an uncle or someone or, or somebody in your your neighborhood who you can aspire to, to say, okay, you know what, that's my North star. I want to be that great engineer, doctor hr person whatever it is you always look for that but sometimes you know what happens in life uh, especially in your kind of a surrounding where you had pastors and people who are who are you know re- religious figures and they're not really the thing that you want to do that's the only context you have but you don't realize when you're in it right that you are paving the way for the next guy to look up to you so you need to pave the way for them to follow you not that you 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 have to look up you maybe you need to figure some of those things out so that's number one thing that I, i've learned in my life you know number two mm-hmm. not being part of something right meaning that uh, you you get into you, you learn about families who are it's a family of lawyers you, you they're a family of doctors i'll give you a, a gigantic example also like a, a lot of people in dot com you know they're They don't, they never did that because .dot .com didn't exist and internet didn't exist, you know, Uh, social media didn't exist, Uh, you know, uh, Zuckerberg could not look up, you know, Jeff Wiener could not look up, you know, that's the, uh, that's the kind of a thing that, that when you're not part of that kind of a group, it's great because it doesn't come with the shackles of assumptions, right? That you, you would constantly think, oh, we don't do that in the fashion industry. We shouldn't do that. no. I have no idea what to do. I'm gonna just do whatever I think is the right thing and I'm gonna learn from it. Another example uh, of my contemporary and a, and a brother to me is Gary Vaynerchuk. Never ever had he run any kind of agency, ever. Never worked mm-hmm. for one, never did anything, came up with VaynerMedia. And, and it's mm-hmm. a, one of the most successful uh, agencies that are out there in digital agencies and marketing agencies. So I, I think that when you when you don't know something, I think it's great. And and what we will talk about also types of talent. Well, one of the things as an executive I did, I never looked at, like if I was hiring somebody in the fashion industry, I never had a criteria that the person had to be from the fashion industry because all they're doing is changing buildings in New York City, right? They go from this mm-hmm. building to that building mm-hmm. and it's the same industry. So to me, that's not ex- exciting. It's great if somebody is very talented and I, if I need a specialty, it's great. But other than that, I want to know what other things does this person know outside of fashion, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe we could teach them fashion and they can learn if they're smart, but I want to know that they worked in 15 other categories. That's exciting to me because Mm -hmm. if they're bringing that sort of uh, expertise from other problem solving that they have done in plumbing, in electronics, in selling books, in selling services, great. Maybe I'm going to try to do a private event in, in fa- fashion industry, and that person could be uh, really beneficial to me. So so embedded in all of this rant is for, what are your <laughs> thoughts about like, not hiring people who are part of the, the clique or industry?
1: Yeah, let me uh, go two directions with that because I love where you're taking this. And the first I want to reflect on on uh, my a little bit on the LinkedIn experience and then sort of parlay that to something bigger that we're facing right now in the middle of the pandemic. So at LinkedIn, it was a new business. There was no competitor because no one had ever taken a database of professional information, converted it into a platform that is producing opportunities to recruit, opportunities to advertise and market is new. So there was no treasure of deep experience where we could go find, hey, have you done this before? It didn't exist. And when we went from 400 people when I started to about four or 5,000 people when I left, every single one of our leaders was managing more people than they'd ever managed before. The CEO was a first-time CEO. Our CFO had never taken the company public. The most people <laughs> I'd ever had managing myself was probably 40, and now I have like 95 recruiters and 250 people extended in my my greater HR team. I mean, on paper, there, if you're an investor prior to the LinkedIn filing the IPO, without looking at the business performance, just looking at does the leadership pedigree suggest the destiny is going to be filled with lots of riches? And the answer was absolutely no. Everyone was quote unquote out of their depth. And I think what you're hitting on is something, you know, what I would carry forward and say, when I I didn't think about that at the time I was there but 4 5 6 years later you get distance and you go we didn't know what we shouldn't know. We didn't know how it was supposed to go. We knew more, we were more big company refugees that knew more how we didn't want to build a company than we did how to how to build a company. Because this is the thing that entrepreneurs struggle. And you, I mean, you're very successful in your own right, plus you know a ton of people. You're not just building a product, you're building an organization. And if you've not done that before, it's very hard. And this is why the failure rate is very high. So to be able to have done that, I just reflect on that and go, I think, Our advantage was we were hungry. We wanted to do something that had never been done before. And had we been through it before, I don't think we would have realized the same success that we had. So that's point number one. Point number two, you know, I spend time all day, all week long dealing with executives from other companies around the world. And I'm asking them, what's your biggest problem? They said, we can't hire people fast enough. Can't hire the people I want. And they're not staying. And so I say, so you have a supply problem, then you have a retention problem. Yes. I said, so, okay. I said, I want you to think about the fact that you're probably going to need to reframe that now because we're in the middle of a pandemic. And I don't know that the supply is going to change anytime soon. And I think the workforce is seeing work differently, but let's go look at Silicon Valley. I said, let me ask you what part of the world has produced the most amount of innovation, arguably the largest amount of intellectual, new intellectual property, and most successful organizations? Would you agree, Silicon Valley? And most of them say, yeah, Silicon Valley. I said, do you also realize that is the geography on this planet that has the highest turnover of anywhere in the world? Those two pieces are connected because when people are moving, ideas are changing. So to your point, you basically outlined what I was, what I was going to say in our talk today a little bit was whenever we faced a problem at LinkedIn and we faced many, the first thing the Jeff Wiener, our CEO would do is say, Hey, at Google, how'd you solve this problem? At Adobe, how'd you solve this problem? At Cisco, how'd you solve this problem? At Apple, how'd you? And so everyone having been in different places, and this is the business case for diversity, right? Mm -hmm. Has a different experience level solving problems. And so But many leaders like, oh no, we need to keep people a long time, and it's really bad. Really, maybe we've overestimated people staying a long time and underestimated what you're saying, new energy, new people, new ideas, new ways of solving problems. And that gets me really excited about what could be possible as we go through a real talent supply shortage beyond just tech. Like you and I have been in the tech industry for a good part of our careers, but now hospitality, restaurant, retail, hotels, they're on their heels like, oh no, we've had a captive market for talent and now we don't know how to deal with it. So yeah, I think it's super interesting, super interesting.
0: I mean, with it, uh, I can tell you during during the pandemic, I have had quite a few clients. I had a different problem to solve. A lot of companies who, uh, you know, over their lifetime should have gone to e-commerce. They never did. It's 2020 pandemic, right? (laughs) Still, people are thinking about should we do e-commerce, right? And should we do social and digital? Good question. You should have asked it 20 years ago, right? Now, yes, you Mm -hmm. have to do it, you know? You, you need to mm-hmm. do it. You have to do it. And a lot of the companies, because you could not go to their establishment anymore because of lockdowns and stuff like that, they needed to change. So that was number one problem for the business. Number two, in certain industries like restaurant industry, what happened? You you mentioned hospitality, right? In the restaurant mm-hmm. industry, when the government started giving uh, checks out right, to everybody, some of them went like, well... If I'm unemployed and if I get that check, I don't have to go back. So a lot of restaurants actually lost people because they said, oh, I don't have to go and face pandemic and risk. I'm going to just sit at home and government is going to just send me checks, you know, and w- my clients, uh, two of them, pretty well-known companies uh, in, in New York City here. And they have actually locations uh, nationwide. They faced that real problem. Like they wanted to have a baker a person to, to do a design of the cake because the birthdays mm-hmm. didn't stop you know people were having birthdays people were mm-hmm. eating but people who would prepare them would not show up and there is a there, that's a skilled worker also somebody who knows mm-hmm. how to design cakes and stuff things of that nature uh w- w- how did you manage through those kind of challenges when when it came to the pandemic because those are real because it's not like you can go out and you know hire people you know because nobody wanted to work
1: right yeah and the other um, playing through that, the unemployment checks, the stimulus checks that people has, has put people in different positions. I mean, some of that money was really needed for some people and some of it has caused people to pause and say, Hey, I just got let go or they just shut, shut down. I'm very vulnerable. If I go back there, maybe I should use this time to explore a different path. Right. And that, and that's totally fair. Um, and I think it it is a moment where, uh, what the pandemic, I believe, has served for everyone is just a reprioritization of their own values and priorities in their life. And the most, uh, the, the best example I can think of to sort of equate this to comes from a situation I had at LinkedIn when we were, you know, we were seeing more people leave than we wanted. Anyone leaving was a problem. You know, we're like, oh my gosh, so and so quit. Oh, you know, we're going to have to hire and this is really going to set us back. And so we we did a lot of research. Why are people leaving? And the, the category of employee that we found over time that left faster and more often than others were first-time parents. And that was mm-hmm. troubling to me running the human resource team because like, hey, are we not as you know thoughtful around time off or preparing or coaching people uh, to be first-time parents? Can we do something differently? And then we looked at all the competition. We looked at the market and then, no, we're doing every everything as good or better than most of our competitors for talent. So what's going on? And I think all of us on the team, we're, we were all parents. And we finally got to, you know, what happens when you have your first child is how you see the world shifts, where you want to be, how you want to spend your time and who you want to be with fundamentally rocks. And I think the pandemic has served in a way, Sabir, this moment, because we all stopped doing life the way we did and any change behavioralist, any you know cultural anthropologist, uh, behavioral scientist will tell you: the longer you stop doing something, the more likely you're not going to return to doing it the way you did. And and, and so and that I was applying to the psychology of how people think. Well, that's a vulnerable sector. Do I really want to do that? Do I want to go somewhere else and try something else? And if I have the financial means to carry me a little bit longer, to explore that, to maybe invest in some more learning or time doing that, I think I'm going to take advantage of that. And that, it's not a bad thing. That's that's a beautiful thing. But he, here's the problem for businesses. The ground is not firm yet, and it's still soft. And it's still, you know, we have this new virus um, the the delta variant maybe we're going to have an american airlines variant or a united variant i don't know but it is interesting that's a joke sabir that, uh, it is interesting that that you know we are not i'm intently not listening to you Steve. <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know i see i know you're focused thank you but i think th- this we we're here we are now 18 19 months into the pandemic as we're recording this today and i st- i feel like most business leaders and it's hard to it's not fair to overgeneralize but for my experience most business leaders are finally for the first time saying you know what i don't think we're going back to the way we used to work i better start equipping myself for an uncertain path forward and i've i've held off on making big decisions on investments on new products on new buildings on new ideas because i've been waiting for more clarity not going to get it so i need to operate in a world where the the lack of information is probably going to be consistent and the lack of clarity forward right and so so that's where we're at and so while all you know consumer behavior is changing you know uh, employee psychology is changing how businesses create value is changing like in a more remote uh, team environment all this is happening at the same time it is that's why I call it a work quake i mean maybe that's even calling it it's a you know everything quake it's just really it's so profound and then the workforce is starting to think like well, um, I've got more to worry about at home than I had before. Do my kids, are they getting the education they need? Are my parents safe? Are the people in my family who are immunocompromised? Am I doing everything I can there? And here's you know one of the, the new dimensions and I was on a, a session with a bunch of uh, chief um, HR officers last week. One of the pieces of employment that was never even something we considered was someone's definition of personal safety as an ingredient to how we need to deal with them, so Sabir, hey, we're going to have a meeting next week. Our twenty-five people, we need you to come back to the office because it's really important. We're all together, and you, like, I am not going back in, in a room with twenty-five people because it's not just the work. It's when I come home, work and diseases or germs that I may attract. Like I'm not comfortable with that. And 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 who are we to judge someone's self-definition of personal safety? That's not a place where we have any any party to having. Uh, you know, judgment on, we have to reconcile, that's in a part of the employment equation that was never there before. And so, you know, the the list goes on. But this is why I think, you know, when you're talking about, wow, how are we people thinking about it, not, not going back to work? Um, it is an employee's market right now. It is, especially if you're a knowledge worker, you have more choice uh, about where to go. And, and this is a big one, the comfort level with leaders managing people remotely just went up. And that means, you know, game on Canada, who's got, you know, different op- opportunities for people. And if people want the lifestyle in certain cities in Canada, you can do that and work for places, you know, around the world. Super interesting. Right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things uh, in my view uh, that has changed people's mindset, um, I'm, I'm going to share some, some thoughts about some YouTubers, right? Uh, okay. when you got on before covid you got on youtube you, you said that oh working in bali thailand vietnam right it's a dream of a lot of people right but they never take that step but if you listen to those youtubers they're actually telling you about how they balance their life and work they do their work work gets done they get paid and at, at the same time they um, they have they can go to the beach they can enjoy food they can they can travel and and such kinds of things right but that was more like yeah i watch travel channel i, I watch youtubers right and it was it was something that you used to watch but i think in during the co during this pandemic what happened was people actually identified with work-life balance i believe they did right mm-hmm. that i don't have to wake up at 6 a.m take a shower get either get my food or I, I get, hit the train uh, spend an hour on average, right? I, on a, I, you know, if you are not in a metro area, if you are in a metro area, you're spending an hour and a half on a train, on a bus, on a uh, in in your car, trying to get to work, and then work starts at that time, and then from there, then you do your three hours, then it's lunchtime, then you do another three hours or four hours, and then it's it's uh, a quitting time. You you get back into that car, it takes you another hour and a half to get back home. So pretty much from 6 a.m till close to 7 p.m. or 7.30 p.m. roughly, right? Most Americans, you would, mm-hmm. you would make it back home and then you barely have any time to eat and sit down with your family. Then it's, especially you, you mentioned first time uh, parents, you could have young, you could be young parents with young kids where you have to shower them and bathe them and stuff like that and spend time with them if they go to kindergarten or, or elementary school to study with them. All of those kinds of things, I think what happened was now, while you were attending your Zoom meeting for, for your work, your kid is attending uh, a Blackboard or, or Zoom meeting for their class in, in school, mm-hmm. and you can keep an eye on them also. You could sit down, take a break, and you could sit down and have lunch with them. You could the, uh, the three hours you were spending commuting now could be family time that you're spending with them. So that's why, I mean, I've been reading, and I'm sure that you have firsthand knowledge of this. What I read was most people said, "Oh, you know what? I'm not gonna go back to the building. I would like to work remotely, even if I have to take a pay cut. It's fine because I'm, I'm I end up saving more time and money by working from home and being with my family."
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, and that that is a profound shift. And I I wonder. Let let's let's go. I haven't gone to uh, this place with with uh, with too many people, but I think this is. I think you are a uh, a perfect person to have this discussion <laughs> with because it's pretty controversial. I wonder in looking at America and you and I both lived around the world. We lived in lots of different places. I wonder if the pandemic hasn't served to poke a significant hole in the definition of the American dream in so far as, you know, big job, big house, big car. Because what the big house, and the big car means is I got to go further away from work to get more property and to afford a bigger house. I want to have a good car because it's a good definition of success. And when we are not in a social setting where we can say, well, I'm a VP at this company and I'm a SVP executive founder, when that social context is stripped out, the need to commute, the need to have a big house, a fancy car is unnecessary. I think it exposes the hollowness of dimensions of the American, you know, definition of success. And I wonder if this country, America right now, I wonder if that's going to take a bigger hit than other countries that don't build, like we define ourselves that many Americans as I am who I am at work. That is me. You know, when I grew up in the East coast, it was like, Hey, where'd your parents go to school? Where'd you go to school? What do you do in, in California? It's a little bit more like, so who are you? Like, what do you do? And a lot of us answer that. So I loved your question. You're like, who are you? You just say what do you do? Tell us where you work. You didn't ask that question, which I loved. And I don't know if many people picked up on that. That is to me, that's a sign of the depth of your life experiences. Like, I, I could find other stuff of what you do, but who are you? I don't know that.
0: And that there is I can no, Google and look up your LinkedIn. I know your history, that's right. work that's history. Right. <laughs> that's
1: right. But I, I just wonder, Sabir, if we have a mo we have an opportunity. To define ourselves by something more meaningful, you know, family and, and 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 community. We have more ways of not knowing our neighbors today than at any time in history. You know, I was thinking the other day, I don't need to go to my neighbor if I run out of butter and I'm trying to make a cake or I need eggs. I don't need to go to my neighbor. And because I don't go to my neighbor, I don't knock on the door and see or, or learn they need help with me putting in a light bulb because I'm taller than my neighbor or they don't look well. Are you OK? Can I can I help with something? I don't have those moments where communities being built because we built this technology that allows us to be separate. We've built uh, you know communities in the suburbs where you know we don't engage with people as much. And I feel like the pandemic has sort of produced a moment for us to go, whoa, whoa,
0: is this really what we want? And I don't know, what do, you, what do you think about that? So I, I think every moment in, in, at least in my life history, right? Uh, let's talk about uh, 2001, financial meltdown. And then right after that, we had 9-11, right? And then in 2008, we had another financial economic housing bubble bursting, right? Uh, we had several other smaller bubbles that burst. But every one of those things, I think it just gave us an opportunity to learn about things like subprime mortgage, you know and <laughs> and the fact that if I if, if it's more than 30% of your income, don't buy that house. you cannot afford it. But that's looking at the other side of the coin. but what happens when you look at it? Well like oh, I want to get a bigger job so I can get a bigger house. and when you have a bigger house, all the furniture you had in your smaller house is irrelevant. You have to either get rid of it or you have to buy more furniture. When you go buy more furniture, you have to use, oh, you know what? I can get private, you know what? I can get uh, equity loan on on this Mm -hmm. property that I just bought that I cannot afford, right? So I Mm -hmm. I think uh, all of this has actually led to people when during COVID, when you cannot go see grandma. Why? It's against the law. (laughs) You can't, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, now now you, that loss actually made you go like, you know what? I'm going to cherish that moment. I want to even if I can FaceTime with her, I would like to do that. Right. Uh, when, when you actually, when, when it comes to hugs, right. When you can hug a person because they're vaccinated, you're vaccinated and their family and you you want to hug them, you know, that, that has become, I think, things that you don't think are big to me has a lot of meaning. You know, it, it has gigantic meaning things that I think we have, um, there is a, um, even though that's not my ethnicity i am multilingual by the way you mentioned that uh, mm-hmm. you know i've lived in other places i actually i have lived in other places and i i'm fluent in seven different languages you know and and different cultures and stuff there is a um, a very talented even though i'm not from that community right in that ethnicity there is a there is a very well known singer named pankaj Judas. i don't know if you've ever heard of him he's an mm-hmm. indian um Kuali kind of a singer right um, one of the one of his songs, he goes like, you know, when when I was growing up, I used to go to my grandfather's village every summer. And it was the best time of my life. I would be away from all this technology, music, and all this stuff. And I would spend time with my with my grandparents and stuff like that. When when I was growing up, then my parents moved out of the village village and they were in the city. And then my dad used to go and work for a factory, right? And then now I have my kids that are looking up to me and we don't have time for each other. They have plenty of time for Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. They don't have time for me, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. I I think Mm -hmm. all the things that, I think it's a bigger issue that we are talking about here. Um, What's meant to be social media tools and social media platforms, to me it's it's very digital and they're very antisocial in my view, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Even though you're Mm -hmm. posting things and sharing your photos and moments, I think as human beings we are, we are we are very much analog and we are moving away from it you know we're moving yeah. away from from those kind of human interactions that makes us human and if you if you can see it uh, now I I think I'm going down a rabbit hole now see what you did to me Steve <laughs> I think what, it, well, what me, it's doing let is let me
1: bring it let me let me bring it out because I've got I want to make a point here which I think ties together some of the things we're talking about and some of the things that I know you care about which is there, there are a lot of people who's, who are concerned about the education d- direction of education today, okay, for yeah. people preparing them for the future. And all this pandemic and teachers doing it remotely and high quality. And I would argue a little bit differently, and just to, for the sake of provocation, I think that our kids went through a time when they had to be in school, then not in school, and had to see their t- teachers pivot, had to see the schools pivot, had to learn new ways of learning, had to go through this Crash course and adaptability and agility, I think that is far more valuable to them as human beings than some curriculum that was disrupted for a short period of time in their lifetime. This is an amazing experience that we're going through. I don't, there's a lot of negative uh, things that have happened, a lot of bad things that have happened. But if you're an optimist and you want to survive, and you look at wow, my kids learned so much and they saw different things. I mean, kids are playing basketball. My kids are all basketball players and they had to wear masks last season to play. And some of them now in some of the public school gyms in California still have to wear the mask to play and it's kind of a charade so they're like there's a rule we have to have it on our face but we put it on our chin so we're meeting the rule but it's kind of a sham but if it makes someone comfortable who set the rule in place and that's the way we got to play we got to play it's just an interesting whole set of new experiences that our kids have been served that don't make me feel like oh they're missing out oh sure some of the you know new academic stuff was was disrupted but the life experience and the moment of adaptability, I think was more than compensating for the things that maybe didn't go the way we normally would have liked.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, gaming the system, right. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I see it. I mean, I, I, take the train, I live in New York city, so I, I take the train to go into the city every now and then even post, mm-hmm. I mean, right now during pandemic, um, when, when it's when the sign says you have to have a mask on to be on the train they keep the mask on they get on the train and if a conductor passes by then it comes mask back up. down <laughs> and then it goes back up if, if they see the, the person coming in you know mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. the, the thing is in bigger picture of things if it's a pandemic if it's a disease it's for your safety and safety of others I, I, I think it's it also shows a level of empathy on your part especially in those kind of social where where you are kind of enclosed for you to like, think about like, if I am a carrier, even though I'm not showing any symptoms, I might be, I might transfer something to someone. So let me take care of humanity also. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. at
0: least my thinking. Not everybody right. thinks like that. They go like, you know what? Yeah. I don't want to put this on because freedom, yeah. this, that, that I can, we can write a whole, right. another book. W- one of the, on. one of
1: the cool experiences my kids had spring break we drove to a, a lake in Arizona called Lake Havasu. The Colorado River empties into this and it's a great place for boating and we can take the dog. And so we show up there and this is a very you know, a strong community around you know, vaccination, pro-vaccination, wear the mask. And so we go to Arizona and we go to the rental shop to rent the boat. So I need, I need to interact with another human being to sign the contract and give the insurance and all that. And the boys look at me and say, dad, nobody's wearing masks here. <laughs> I said, that's right. They go, why aren't they wearing masks? And it was a moment of truth for them to say, I, here's a community. They see the set of facts that you have, that your school and your community has in California, they, in, in Northern California, they see it differently. And they're like, well, and it was just so interesting to me. It was like years ago uh, when the, what was it? The, the 2020 election, I think it was, no, no, it was the 2016 election. I'm watching a political debate. Uh, all the Republicans were out there and, uh, my son's like, why is no, why are they arguing with each other when they're all in the same party? He didn't understand it. Like, and then he asked me, and this was a moment of, of pure, just innocence. Uh, dad, what are we, are we Republicans or are we Democrats? He, what, he asked me to tell him what we are and i was like <laughs> oh boy i wasn't ready for that question and then he said why are they not talking to the one person uh on the stage um who was the governor of ohio um whose name's escaping me right now but he was seen by all of them to be a real threat to trump but no one wanted him to talk and it was just so fascinating but these are the moments and i think education can happen through through deeply through different experiences and that moment of just going on a trip to arizona seeing a different community respond to the set of facts differently was really like whoa eye-opening for them you know and it was such we had such great discussions after that
0: yeah i i, I know that we went heavy into the pandemic but i i do want to during that pandemic or just before that you actually uh, were in the middle of writing this book uh work quick yeah. um why did you decide to write the book
1: um, I was frustrated that all the conversations around the future of work were all really pessimistic, and it was over-indexing. I felt too heavily on automation, AI, uh, robotics, and not um, having the conversation I thought was more important around how being human has never been more important. And yes, we're going Im- to we're going to infuse technology to help us realize greater efficiencies and cost savings and productivity but those all touch a human being and we're having more conversations being seduced by the tech than we are around enriching the lives of our, of our, of our friends and our families and taking, I think, what the reason technology is here to deliver us a more human experience in life. And, you know, is telling people, hey, half the jobs in the next 10 years don't even exist today. We're going to go through a digital transformation and maybe you're going to have a job at the end of it, but you're probably going to have a lot of new skills. I'm not sure you're going to want to learn them. Just really defeatist narrative. And that was my, my book's the sort of attempt to say, hey, that's the wrong conversation. The right conversation is, how, how can you be more human and build a more compelling career, recognizing the tidal wave of technology that's coming? And how can you leverage that in su- yourself and your company up for success? So that was probably the biggest, just irritant for me. And also seeing over time, something I said earlier, which is these models we have of organizations and businesses were built for a time of much slower pace and slower change and we just haven't adapted them. And so both parties right now, employers and employees are fundamentally unsatisfied and feeling uh, unhappy and not really sure why. And so my book's an attempt to sort of try to explain that in simple, through stories and and through my own experiences in a way that's gonna help people not have all the answers, but connect the dots in a way that they can come up with better answers.
0: I mean, it's a phenomenal book. I mean, I I went through it and it kind of reminded me of one one of the things that I had implemented, because the thing is I'm considered not to be an executive type, as you can see from my face, you know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not your typical executive. So <clears throat> I was running this um, company, a, a division of a company. It was about 400, 500 people roughly, right? And um, uh, the good news was the chairman and the CEO was on my side. So he, he said, you know, we have tried everything. It, this This division is not growing you do it, do whatever you want to do, fully support it. Great. So I have board support and I have chairman support. That's great. You know? So I, I, I go in there. One of the, one of the things that I implement is, is a program called in your shoes. I don't know if you've ever implemented, I'll explain what, what Sabir's in your shoes is. Okay. All right. Every, every month for uh, one day, uh, because it people have different f- job functions, you have to go and work in another position, but I don't know how to do that. Great, you'll learn. We train people all day long, so you're gonna learn. You're gonna learn mm-hmm. and you're gonna go through it. For example, VP of marketing, you're gonna be packing orders in the warehouse. I've had I've had some executives that they thought it was beneath them to do those things. I said, mm-hmm. well, but you cannot sit in a, in a meeting room, plan out a, a giveaway that you wanna give to customers to in order to do customer acquisition Mm-hmm. And not know the impact of that decision on operations. Because mm-hmm. when you sit and make those kind of great ideas come to life, you're creating a nightmare in the wire warehouse, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. everybody had that position, right? Uh, you don't know anything about programming? Great. You're going to spend a day and, and you're going to learn about the challenges of running a website. You're going to learn about how to keep things up and running, right? If you are working in the warehouse, you're going to come up and you're going to learn how we actually Market this product. I call this program "In Your Shoes" program, and and everybody was in a rotation, and mm, that was I love that it. was a job requirement. Out of the twenty two mm-hmm. days you worked in a month, one day was dedicated to you going and working in another uh, location, and that was part of the job description.
1: Mm-hmm. What, yeah, what are, what are your thoughts that. on that? <laughs> I love that. And and I've seen that operationalized in other areas and even it, taking it a step further and forcing people to move every few years. Spotify is one organization uh, in 2019, their CEO, and this was in response to how do we avoid single points of failure? I mean, what you're addressing there is greater connective tissue, greater peripheral vision, greater shared understanding of All the roles so that you can make more informed decisions and you have an appreciation and empathy for how the business works right and and it's really core super super uh intelligent and we would call those drive alongs or you know ride alongs and 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 i've seen that done in different pieces of of different organizations spotify did something similar which i think is genius if your business can support it which is you cannot the ceo said you cannot be in your job more than two years you have to move to a different department now they had a business that, as you said, you can learn and you can uh, train fairly easily uh, to take on new tasks. What I love about that was it is, the, it, it is solving two problems. I think the workforce today is seeing that my learning and my growth is what I'm loyal to. More than a company. If you, if you grow me and make me more vital for tomorrow, I'm going to be more loyal to you. But let's be clear, the loyalty is to the learning, not to you because you can't promise me that the business won't be impacted by, uh, some new, you know, economic, uh, you know, tidal wave that comes out of nowhere. Right. So people are looking for that. And if you can deliver that, you're feeding, I think what Talent's saying, and this is a little bit asynchronous with what I was taught in my career, which was don't, don't train your employees too much. Cause then they're going to be able to go get another job. and, <laughs> And I'm like, and I've done that. I would not sign in earlier in my career, would not sign tuition reimbursement because I say, well, if I give you the master's degree, you're just going to take that and get another job. Why would I do that? And today I look at that, that philosophy just doesn't work. And we're seeing organizations like Chipotle, for example, that says, Come here because we know we're a transition employer. We'll make you better. We know we are not a destination employer. We are a transition employer. And I think that's sort of evolved thinking. And it's, it's restaurant, it's fast food. Of course, someone's not going to be there for most of the positions for their whole career. Maybe someone will, great. But they've come to terms with that we are not. So we're going to build a model that makes you better, and the better we make you when you leave you're and it's a B to C you're going to still be a C you're going to come back and tell your friends to eat here or come uh, come work here because you know we treated you right so i love that model sabir and i wish more people would think about it because if you have a if you have a talent supply problem today if you have a recruiting problem today i'm i'm here to tell you you don't have a recruiting problem You have a failure to be creative on how to create value problem. And you assume that employees are what you need, but there's lots of different ways. There are development shops. There are contractors and temps and gig workers that can work for you in different ways. And we've got to be more creative now. You know, we just have to be more creative. And I I love your your notion of movement and new ideas and new energy uh, in your organization.
0: And, and uh, one other thing that I, I love this section of the book really well, it, it has to do with when when you're working somewhere, you make human connections. It's not employer connections, meaning that uh, the people you worked with 20 years ago, and if you still have that relationship with them, that's great. Because you, you, you never know if you need them or they need you. They'll pick up and go like, hey, Sabir, I have this problem. Could you help me, Steve? I'm running into mm-hmm. this. Can I g- grab a coffee with you and just just talk to you about this, right?
1: Yeah. It could
0: be you, you believe it or not, like that the human connections last a long time. When you make it make your uh, relationships very transactional, meaning that oh, when I worked at MetLife, I, I worked with this person. Uh, what happened after that? Oh, we lost connection. That's it. Maybe mm-hmm. they live in LinkedIn as a follower connection from a long time ago, right? But you don't even know them anymore, right? Yeah. And, and actually that has been my mantra for, for life. I actually grab anniversary dinners with folks I worked with 20 years ago. Oh, I'm wow. not their boss. They're not my boss. We mm-hmm. just have, we, we sit down, we have a meal together at the, the whole team, uh, you know, I mean, during pandemic is hard, but before that, and during pandemic, we actually had zoom meetings where we did the anniversary over zoom, you know, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. meetings like that. I, I think those relationships, relationships could last forever. Employers are temporary. Right. And especially if you if you live in Silicon Valley, it could mean (laughs) you probably know that the set of people, you know, in six months is going to be different.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so true. And I think I mean, it sounds sort of we've always known this, you know, that a a good network, a vital network is really, really helpful. Um, And I think one of the points I, I wanted to make in my book is in a world where you know technology is changing fast and things you need to know is increasing what's more valuable than knowing stuff is knowing people who know stuff right like so you can call the hotline and say hey so i you know from my own experience when linkedin filed to go public i'd never been in an organization let alone responsible for the talent function in an organization that's going ipo so what did i do I went and found out, who do I know that's gone through this? And I called him <laughs> and said, hey, what can you tell me? What should I worry about? What do I need to know? What should I plan for? And things like that. Enormously helpful. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're a perfectionist or if you're too busy, um, you know, you're missing out on a superpower, which is really, you know, sometimes. And I'm starting to see, interestingly enough, Sabir, I'm starting to see companies measure candidates by how good your network is. Not just wow. to, not just to, hey, we want to recruit from your network, but I want to know you've got a good lifeline, so that you have a better ability to solve problems. Uh, and I haven't seen that before, and that's pretty, that's a pretty interesting trend. To your point.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, more recently, and I would say in the past ten years, when I joined our companies on a full-time basis, they would typically say, "Hey, we have, do you know any good attorney for an in-house counsel?" has nothing to do with the career path I've had you know mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. thing is do I know yeah I have a list of 50 of them I've worked with in the past you know <laughs> uh, let mm-hmm. me find out what kind of a person is it is it a real estate attorney or do you want an ip attorney i actually have classifications of attorneys i know mm-hmm. i'm not an attorney i have nothing to do with being an attorney but the thing is it's it's the relationships you build and 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 the trust you have in, in certain people over time that that's that's a much more richer Relationship that I would say, forget about engagement rates or you know social media metrics. That's what's important. That's what's important for you to like build that kind of a network. So I think I I totally I I agree with that because uh, the more you know, especially as you move up the chain, like when when you're joining, uh, it doesn't matter what your C level uh, title is. You're you're recruiting. You could be VP. You're recruiting. Mm -hmm. You know you could be if, if you're treating your employees right you the most junior person let's call them interns they are recruiting on your behalf you know if, if mm-hmm. you're doing the right thing if you have built which i'm which is the next t- topic i want to talk to you about is culture Sure. right yeah how do i build culture in my startup like let's say you know because we do have an audience of startup uh founders that that follow the show Uh, If I'm a startup founder, what sort of a culture should I, you know, because you came from that, right? Uh, In Mm -hmm. 2009, Mm -hmm. believe it or not, LinkedIn was a baby, you know? So, uh, you know, considering that, like, what what sort of a culture should I create in order to attract the right talent to, to my organization?
1: Well, the first thing that I would tell an entrepreneur early on is you've already got a culture, whether you like it or not. You're already making choices of how you dress, what hours you work. Who you share information with, who you invite to meetings, who you don't invite to meetings. You're already building your culture. Um, and the, the, the next question I would ask an entrepreneur is, do you believe culture is important? Because if you don't, don't say it's important and then tell everyone what the culture is and do the opposite. Because <laughs> I've seen that happen more times than you would realize. It's like hey, if, you're, if you don't have the belief that this is a really important ingredient for you to be able to deliver great value and hire great people, then don't say you think it is. But if you do, what I would say is simple things like uh, one of the simplest mistakes I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs make, and it's not intentional, it's super easy to make, and I probably would make it if I wasn't aware of it, which is the email names that you assign people. Are you gonna use first name at mycoolcompany.com? Because if you're Sabir and then you hire a year later, another Sabir, guess what? They're not gonna be Sabir. Steve, I've never never had that luck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then then what's going to happen is everyone's going to know the second Sabir wasn't the first Sabir. And now you've created a two-tier system just based on how you're doing your email identifications, right? So I would say, do first initial last name or first name dot last name. Don't just do the first name. And and I know it feels easy. Oh, yeah, I'm here first. But now you're making a definition, a line in the sand of who was here first and who wasn't. And that's not going to be healthy for people to feel like, oh, I'm an outsider because I wasn't here first. Right. And and so be mindful of that. But I hear the the only thing I could say is, I mean, it is a very personal thing and there is no one right culture. It's what's right for you and your team and your business and the folks that you're, you know, your partners and your your communities. The The best message I can give you is a great story. My first day on the job. At LinkedIn, Reed Hoffman goes by my office. I go, Reed, Reed, it's me, Steve. Uh, it's my first day on the job, your first head of HR. I said, What should I know? Like, what's most important? And here's Reed Hoffman, one of the most successful angel investors I- I- in history. And he goes, He comes in, he sits down, he goes, Well, Steve, I'm um, excited to have you here. What's most important to me? Culture. And I go, oh, awesome. Read. Listen, I grew up in South Africa. I lived in Singapore. I've lived in Canada. I've lived in the US. Like, and I've worked in six different industries. I got your culture. What do you want? And he looks at me like a disappointed parent. Like I just let him down. Like, oh. And I thought, oh boy, I'm getting fired day one. I've just (laughs) totally messed it up. I don't know what I said, but it wasn't the right thing. Because I could look at his face. And he said, he pauses and he, he ponders for a second. He said, Steve, let me ask you a question. What kind of culture do you want? Now, here I am, 30-ish years into my career in HR, no one ever asked me what culture I want. I was always told, this is the culture, make it a little better, fix it here and there. No one ever asked me that. But you mm-hmm. know what, Samir? I didn't even need a second to think about it. I knew what I wanted. I wanted a place where I could make a difference. I was surrounded by people who were going to fill me with energy and teach me, where the work I did mattered and that I could have a life. I think those are the four, maybe there's a the fifth one. And I just so he looks at me and it, the happiness is coming back into his face. He goes, "Me too." He stands up and walks out. And I thought, "What what was that? Was that some sort <laughs> of like Jedi Jedi mind trick that he just played on me like he just asked me what cu- culture I wanted. When I'm asking him what he wants, he says, "What do I want?" I answered. He says, "That's what I want to boom out." So, a few weeks later, I'm interviewing my first t- technical leader Uh, since I joined LinkedIn, he asked me, what's culture here at uh, LinkedIn? I said, well, what culture do you want? He answers the same thing I did. He says, great people make a difference, do stuff that matters and have a life. And so this is the last advice I'll give for for entrepreneurs on this topic, which is, I think people today want to help build a culture, not be told it's an impenetrable, immovable thing. If your organization is organic, people are organic, build something that people can contribute to rather than have to study what the tablets are.
0: Well, you know, Steve, this has been phenomenal, but this is what I ask every guest of mine. What is your number one advice in in HR and building companies? What is is your number $100,000 expert insight?
1: All right. Well, given where we are today, um, I would say we have the greatest opportunity of our lifetime today to build a better future of work. Park your expectations, your beliefs, your paradigms that the only way to create value is the way we used to do it, except lean into the discomfort, lean into the uncomfortable, which Carol Dweck, the godmother of growth mindset says, when you're hurt, when your brain is sore, that means you're growing, lean in and, and let's build a better future. So you know, we've got the greatest opportunity ever to, to rebuild this let's not go back to the broken ways of the past let's use this chance to address some of the biggest problems we have in the world of work like diversity like inclusion for example so uh, so that's my uh, those are my thoughts up here
0: Thank you Steve uh, thank you for being here and uh, I think uh, uh, equity and equality I mean I, I think there are a lot of challenges and every time, I think humanity that has faced any kind of a challenge i mean this being a gigantic one which unifies all of humanity right i think will bring about many different opportunities uh for us to like rethink life work and and its meaning and everything else uh, in between it you know thank you for being uh here as a guest and sharing your wisdom definitely i would highly recommend the book is available in a paperback hardcover i believe and also on, as an audiobook i I prefer audiobook because uh, I can mm-hmm. listen to it while i'm working and and take notes and stuff like that so definitely highly recommend it uh, and um, and thank you audience for joining us Steve Thank really you thank you. you
1: so much thank you.